2: And we are back, episode number 34 of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Van Hees, and thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. We are here to become better habitat managers, and we do that by interviewing all the experts out there in the country to help us learn. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Jim Browker from Extreme Deer Habitat. He is kind of known as the hinge-cutting guy. Out there, I know hinge cutting. Uh, some people love it, some people hate it. But today we're going to talk about it. We are going to go into the three types of hinge cuts and why you want to do each one of them. We are also going into common misconceptions of hinge cuts. If you don't like them or they don't work for you, maybe we will unearth why. Um, some safety items we're going to talk about today. How to fell a tree is. A very important thing to know before you go out there and start hinge cutting. And then also, you know, how to avoid barber chairs and things like that, which are ways people get hurt when uh, cutting down trees and or hinge cutting. Guys, this episode is jam-packed full of information. Hinge cutting 101, everything hinge cutting. I feel like i said hinge cutting too many times, but I'm excited, and it's a great episode, so sorry about that. Guys, I want to thank you, the listeners, once again for coming back. Can't do it without you. Um, we also need to thank our sponsors. I had lunch with Nick Nation this week from the Habitat Hook. Nick was telling me stories about how he had this 110, 120 inch A-point working his 10 acre property this fall for a few days and he almost had a shot opportunity at him. The important part that I took from the story was that he used his hook and he hinge cut and worked. His whole property into a perfect little deer setup, more like an ambush setup for deer moving through. And he almost capitalized on another great buck in a, in a mid Michigan small property situation. So you can check out what the Habitat hook is and how to use it on his website, nationscreations.net. And don't forget to mention the Habitat podcast. You'll get 10% off any hook you choose. That's free money, guys. I like to say free money. Next, we want to thank Lincoln Rome with the Packer Mash Line of Culta If you are in Michigan this weekend in the Grand Rapids area, Lincoln will have his Culta Packers up at the Hunting Time Expo here in Grand Rapids. Uh, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He's going to have a booth. Stop in and talk to him. He might even have one there. You can pick up and take home with you. I'll save some shipping. I'm not sure, but 10% off those as well, guys. You mentioned the podcast. 10% off a Culta Packer. That's 50 bucks on his cheapest model, and it only goes up from there. Uh, spring food plots are right around the corner, and we're going to want a culture packer when we're putting those in. Speaking of spring food plots, Killer Food Plots is our last sponsor. He will also be at the Hunt and Time Expo in Grand Rapids this weekend. Be sure to stop by and see Nick. You'll see his beautiful booth all set up. guy really knows how to do it. He is going to be pushing a couple new products this year. He has one called the Smoke Screen that's been out. For a little while but it's still relatively new it's a very fast acting screen to screen off entrance and exit food plot security etc he's also going to be covering his crop dusting or crop duster product this is a great top dressing product uh not quite throw and grow but a better top dressing you know with with the buckwheat and the rye etc so be sure to stop there talk to nick check out his products you can also find them at killerfoodplots.com Guys, enough yapping from me. Let's get Jim Browker on the line. Thanks again. Here we are. Jim Browker, Extreme Deer Habitat and Hinge Cutting. Good afternoon, everybody. Jared Van he's here back with the Habitat Podcast. We have our co-host Brian on the line and a special guest, Dr. Jim Browker. How are you doing today, Jim? Hey, okay. How are you? Good, sir. Good. It's... uh. Nice and cold out. Should be out hinge cutting, but uh, home with the kids today, you know.
3: Yeah, I think I'll stay home. We went out and cut a um, couple of big dump loads of um, firewood yesterday, but uh, today's a little too cold. I I stayed in the house and played pool this morning.
2: There you go. Perfect. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on here, and uh, Brian, thank you for joining as well. Jim, let's get right into this. We like to start out talking about who our guest is, where they're from. It's not true. Do you mind diving into that for a few minutes?
3: Sure. I, my my name is Jim Brock. I was born in Coldwater, Michigan, which is where I reside today. I'm up on Iowa Island on Coldwater Lake. I was born in a little ho- local hospital here, I pretty much was raised um, in a hunting culture. Uh, hunted from the time I was a teenager. Uh, I was a known factory worker after high school, and did that for about seven or eight years. And then I started going to college. And long story short, 10 years later, had a a bachelor's, master's degree in biology and a Ph.D. in biochemistry. I spent the next um, two and a half decades out in different areas, living in Illinois, uh, where I never hunted. A lot of guys would wonder why I didn't, but uh, I was more interested in coming back and hunting in Michigan with family, which I did when I could. Uh, Lived there for seven years, uh, moved up to, uh, I, I was in California for two years at Stanford University. Uh, moved to Chicago area, lived there for seven years, moved to Arizona for three years, and I ended up my career in San Diego. I was a scientist, uh, mainly uh, working in areas of uh, diabetes and implantable medical devices. I retired young at the age of 56, and all my life I always wanted to learn more about deer and deer hunting. I was really enthralled with it, although I didn't get to do much of it over the years that I was working the only place I ever hunted was Michigan, and I would fly back and go to the family farm. My wife's family had a farm, and we would hunt there for a week or two whenever I could get back. And I was never a very good hunter. We shot anything that moved because we always had antlerless permits, and we would shoot any buck we saw the moment we saw it, that we had a good shot in it. And then um, around 2005, I shot the biggest buck I had ever shot. It was about 100-inch um nine point, and I happened to meet a neighbor, uh, because that buck had come off his property, and he started talking to me about growing, um, big deer and how he was doing all this habitat work and all this stuff, and I, I told him, you know, you're never going to be able to get deer to grow old as long as you have neighbors like us, because we're going to shoot everything we see.
4: <laughs>
3: and I really frustrated that guy, his name was Eric, and we became friends over the years, but, um, About uh, within the next year, he told me, uh, a year or two later, no, it was actually three or four years later, Jake Ellinger and I started a co-op in the area. And when we were talking to him about joining the co-op, he said, you know, I almost got so frustrated with you guys that I was going to sell my property and move to uh, Iowa. uh, But he didn't do it. So um, I was a fast learner. In 2005, I had never heard of passing a buck or anything like that. Didn't know anything about deer habitat, and uh, I decided in uh, two thousand six I retired. I moved back to Michigan in two thousand seven, and I decided I was going to get my uh, five thousand hours. Now it's more like ten thousand hours in just doing nothing but studying deer, deer habitat, deer biology, and uh, so that brought me to uh, I guess two thousand eleven. I formed a company with with. Um, couple of guys, uh, Jake Ylinger and Randy Vanderbeen uh, and um, worked at that company for a couple of years. And I decided to go out on my own, and I formed a company called Extreme Deer Habitat, uh, with the goal in mind being to help small property owners do what I had achieved. Been, I talk about myself. I have a book called Extreme Deer Habitat, and I have that company. And I talk about myself as just being an average Joe that decided to figure out, from a scientific standpoint, really, or a scholarly standpoint, what does it take to be successful at uh, getting deer uh, uh, on your small property and and being able to have uh, good hunting on, let's say, a 40, 60, 80-acre property? That, That was my goal. And I figured that out, and I wrote a book about it. And my main story to people is, If I can do it, because I'm Joe Lunchbucket, sat on uh, a bucket out in the woods for many years. If I can do it, anybody can.
2: No, that's very nice. And I think that hits home a lot with a lot of our listeners because we're just a lot of regular Joes as well. And I always love that story, hearing from how you went from the the brownest down and just a few years later. I mean, I've seen some of the bucks you've been harvesting, and, and you've really upped your game. So hats off to you. That's always impressive.
3: Yeah, probably more important is the bucks I've passed. I've got, I take video of every deer I see when I'm in the woods. And I've passed so many bucks that would have been a buck of a lifetime for me before. And that's one of the biggest secrets, of course, to killing a big buck is to not shoot a little one. And not shoot a medium-sized one after a while.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very nice. Thanks for going into that. Now, at extreme deer habitat, what do you focus on? I mean, i can kind of pick up from the name, but... What makes your deer habitat extreme, quote unquote, and and why did you feel that this was the answer?
3: Well, the extreme part has to do with optimizing for deer habitat. And I talk a lot about this in my book, but when a guy buys a piece of property, uh, there are certain uh, uh, financial considerations in doing that. It costs a lot to buy a property. There's usually timber on the property. Uh, there are fields in the property that can be rented out to farmers, or you might choose to put it in the CRP, or you might choose to not put it in the CRP, which is an economic uh, can be an economic hit to a family. So there are all these decisions that you have to make when you buy a property. Extreme deer habitat is when you come onto it and say, I'm not going to make any compromises. I'm going to make this into the most extreme deer habitat I can. To do so uh doesn't fit with a lot of what's been taught in the deer world if you uh, and i'm a, a, a quality deer management association member i I love those guys but and and uh, i'm an active member, uh, but at the same time, almost everything they teach is a compromise in the end so for example, when you start talking about timber on your property, they say call a forester and do a timber stand improvement well a timber stand improvement almost always improves your property for deer and other wildlife, but it doesn't take it to the ultimate. In other words, as long as you're growing a tree for future timber, that tree is going to shade out things that a deer needs in order to survive, Uh, with a few exceptions being mass trees and that sort of thing. So the extreme part, the extreme deer habitat thing is saying, um, we understand those of you who, you know, you want to walk the middle line. And I'm with it. I, I um, talk with a lot of hunters, and they say, you know, I'd really like to be able to um, have timber in the future. And they go, great, that's your decision. Everything's a landowner's decision. But we do show what you need to do if you want to have ultimate, um, optimal deer habitat with no compromises. And that's where the extreme part of it comes in.
2: Okay, and when did it click for you that extreme is what was needed for places like Michigan, PA, New York versus, you know, just a, a regular timber harvest or...
3: Well, the main thing you look at is woodlots and, and by the way, this is not anything new to me. If you follow um, Dr. James Crow, known as Dr. Deer, he teaches and has for a long time that nothing above five feet off the ground helps a deer. And people will say, yeah, but what about Acorns, yeah, they do, and so do apples and things like that. But um, the, the way that people fail when they walk into their woods is that I'm being too conservative. And if I look at the first two or three years, I really got engaged. I bought a 130-acre property in Hillsdale County, Michigan, and um, I I would go in and I learned how to hinge cut, and I would, I would hinge cut underneath the canopy, and a couple of years later, everything would be dead and I would grow a food plot, and I didn't take out enough canopy, and it wouldn't grow very well. And and really, the main lesson for me was I had to go extreme if I wanted optimal deer habitat. I had to take out the canopy and bring everything down to the ground. Uh, and that includes anything that's big, you know, big trees, uh, if you want optimal deer habitat to go. So that's one piece of it is the forest piece. The other piece is the The field piece, the most perfect deer habitat there is, in my opinion, is an old overgrown field that doesn't have too many grasses in it uh, because um, your um, full season grasses can kind of take over those fields. But an old field where you have lots of goldenrods and you have brush and you have uh, freshly growing young trees, that's the most perfect deer habitat because a deer can... Uh, disappear 10 yards into it, and that's what they want. And it's for food. It has about 2,000 pounds per acre of food compared to only 200 pounds in the canopied woods.
4: Yeah, so really,
3: what, yeah, uh, the secret is to create two things, cover and food. And the best food to produce is not a food plot. It is native forbs and
4: brush and bushes uh,
3: because that's about 50% of what a deer wants in its diet. You go around to these farms in southern Michigan, and you see these woodlots that are all overgrown. They have a canopy, and people say, oh, they got all the corn and beans they want. Well, that's only 50% of their diet. If you don't have lots of buds of trees and twigs and uh, broadleaves growing on your property, uh, that's not good for deer. And you're probably not going to attract them uh, as many as you'd like for the area and they're not going to
2: be as healthy as they could be. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny you say that. It seems to be a, a very much recurring theme on this show is uh, early successional growth and, and native browse. I mean, the more episodes we do, the less we talk about food plots, and the more we talk about that early successional stuff and the, the golden rod and, and that type of stuff. So,
3: Yeah, there's nothing wrong with food plots, but yep. they're easy. Anybody, there's there's 20 different books you can get. Um, food pots are easy to grow. There are lots of experts that can help you. Guys like John Comp in Michigan can help you grow a food pot and you can get a style test, and, you know, bang, it's done. Uh, creating uh, a diversity of natural browse in your property and creating good cover, that's the secret to really having great deer habitat.
2: Now, if you go into a woods... <laughs> kind of like I did this year in mine and you can see fairly far across it, how far do you need to be able to see before you have enough cover? Or when should one know that, okay, maybe we need to start talking about hinge cutting? Do you have a kind of... Well, it's not just hinge cutting,
3: but this is a broader question. Um, If I make a food plot that I want a deer who lives in Michigan to use in daytime. I have um, a mantra that I use. That deer has to be two jumps to cover. Okay. In other words, the chances of a deer using a one-acre circular food plot in daytime, and I'm talking about broad daylight, the chances of them using that in Michigan, other than on a giant, you know, one or two thousand acre property, the chances of them using it... uh, are about as close to zero as you can get, unless maybe it's a little uh, button buck or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, So two jumps to cover, uh, no matter what the habitat is. Uh, But there are um, nuances to that. Uh, You have to have open areas, too. But um, those open areas have particular uses. The open areas can be designed to make deer go around them in daylight, to funnel them. And we also create open areas where um, uh, when those are being chased by bucks, they they like to run around in heavy cover and then have an open area to pound on it. So there are reasons to have open areas. But my point is that whether it be a transition area uh, in the woods or in a field, uh, a food plot or whatever, if you want deer to be walking through it casually in daylight, not being chased there by gunshots or something, but casually walking around doing their thing, they have to have cover. They gravitate to cover areas in daytime, and they gravitate to open areas at night. So at night, they'll be out in the middle of a big field. And this probably fundamentally has to do with how they escape predators. Uh, In an open field, they can run full speed if they see a predator coming. Uh, They can't do that in the dark in a covered area. So... They stay away from the heavy cover areas in the dark, and gravitate to the open fields and in daytime. So most of us, we want deer to move in daytime. To do that, you ask how far in a in an open field. I would say you know ten to thirty yards, and in a woods in an area that you want to have be as the travel corridor, it would be the same thing. From the ground, they can't see more than ten to thirty yards.
2: Yep, that answers it. Okay. Now all that makes sense. So when you're doing a uh, food plot for instance, if somebody grabs uh, an open two-acre area, would you mow that whole two-acre area and plant it in a food plot, or what would you do with that? Would you? I kind of already know the answer, and I, and I kind of Well, the number made this one. Mistake, yeah, I think you do
3: know the answer, and you're kind of setting me up with a. Um, yeah, because I kind of made of this that.
2: mistake, so I want to kind of hear what you're you right. would do in that term in that area.
3: The number one mistake um, new property owners make is clearing their properties. They get there, and the first thing they want to do is get the bush hog out. And, uh, you know, I have friends, Jake Ellinger, Jim Ward, other guys that show up at properties, and the guy says, well, I got everything ready for you to come here. This was all thick brush here, and I cut it, and now I need, I got a, a three-acre food plant. I need you to tell me what food to put in it. And, and and. You know, they've already destroyed the best thing they could possibly have because they could have taken that and put a little maze of interconnected 10th acre food plots in it uh, where different doe families can be in those different plots, and a buck has to go from one plot to another to look to check things out. So he's moving all over the place. Instead, they make a three-acre area. Even if bulls use it in daytime, which they're probably not going to do because it's too big, a buck can come and stand in one corner of it and check everything out, and he doesn't have to move. So um, we,
4: that, having that
3: cover is so critically important, and that's one of the biggest mistakes new landowners make is clearing brush because uh, brush is deer habitat. It's got food, and it's got cover for them. And you take that away, and you want to grow a, a food plot there, especially if you're in an agriculture area. That's the worst thing you could think of doing. Because they've got food pots that they can use at night. They've got all the artificial food in the world in an area like mine with cornfields and bean fields and hay fields, winter wheat fields, etc. Uh, that's not what you provide for them. You want to provide them with a safe place to be on their feet in daytime. They don't use those fields. They'll, they'll use a corner of the field, you know, a quarter of a mile from the road, and you look through your binoculars. Oh, the deer use that in daylight. Well, that's because they feel completely safe there, and you can't get to them. And if you did get to them, there's no way they would be using it anymore, usually, because they would sense you the first uh, after the first day you were out there, unless you have extreme dirt, uh, extreme set control. So if, if everything comes back to cover every almost every question you're going to ask.
2: Okay. No, I like that. Now, we kind of covered the, the field type, the open area. Now, mo- let's move into the woods. I wanted to talk about hinge cutting today because we've had a few people on who don't do it very much or who've had some issues with it, and I'm I'm thinking I got to get Jim on here. We got to talk to him yeah. and get his side of the fence view because I know um, after owning your book for about two years now, uh, you're you're for it. So let's start out with the basics, if you don't mind. Um, what is hinge cutting? Why do you hinge? Real quick, and then we can get into some further topics on that.
3: Well, hinge cutting is probably a – I've never liked that term, but um, it, we're stuck with it, I think, because it's so widely used now. But okay. what you're doing, And the reason I say that is because when you're conventionally cutting a tree, if you see guys out uh, cutting logs, they're putting a hinge in the tree. And so we call this hinge cutting because we don't do a face cut on the tree. Normally, if you're going to cut a tree down, you make a notch in the front of the tree, and then you cut the tree from behind – and the role of that notch is to give a space for the tree to fall into. Behind the notch is a hinge which sets the direction of fall. So the notch in the face of the tree normally creates a space for the tree to fall into. That notch does not set the direction of fall. What sets the direction of fall is the hinge that's behind that. And then you back cut into it, and you get the tree to fall in the direction of the hinge, that the hinge forces it to go.
4: Okay. Uh,
3: hinge cutting, you don't put a face cut in the tree. You still do a back cut, and it still goes forward and hinges. And the goal of hinge cutting is to get the tree to fall to the ground sideways to hold together so that the trunk still has some support and it still has a vascular system, and the tree continues to lift. And that tree will then uh, provide cover, visual a barrier and a physical, uh, uh, cover as well as food because if it stays alive, it's going to continue to produce buds and leaves that the deer can eat. So what we do to hinge cut is to cut the tree about three quarters of the way through. No more. People, uh, the big mistake people make is often hinge cutting too far and then it breaks off. Uh, you hinge through and then pull or push the tree down or let it fall uh, if it has a lean in the direction of its lean, but that isn't always the best way to do it because you can get more breakoffs that way. So we're trying to get the trees down on the ground, create cover, and keep those trees alive.
2: And how long do they live for once you get a successful hinge cut?
3: Indefinitely. I mean, if you walk around any given woods, um, you should see especially uh, basswood and mulberry trees that tend to break down in storms, and... Uh, a lot of them uh basswood and mulberry uh and there are some other species as well Box elder is another example. you see these multi trunked trees in the woods those are um often out uh the ancestors of a natural hinge trunk where a tree dropped over and then sprouts came up out of it and and they make all uh they make new trees so uh, the the longest I know of, I I helped a guy named Mike Hurtges, and Mike Hurtges is a guy who is the original guy that brought hinge cutting to Michigan. Uh, he uh, studied under a guy in Wisconsin, uh, had a mail order uh, course in deer habitat back in the mid-early 90s, and that guy... Um, taught uh, Mike Hartges how to hinge cut. And then all the hinge cutting in Michigan, and I've done a lot of research on this, uh, emanated from Mike. Well, Mike had trees on his property that were 20 years old. Uh, Three or four years ago, we went and rehinged those trees. So they had been grown for 20 years.
2: (laughs) Wow, that's awesome.
3: And I've got a video on my um, YouTube site showing uh, Mike and I cutting, rehinging one of those trees.
2: Now, were you... So Mike developed. I actually walked to Mike's property about probably three years ago. He gave me a tour of it, and it, I did see the tree you're talking about. And yeah, the the rehinged trunk is already gigantic, being 20 years old. I mean, it's like a whole another tree. Now, yeah, Mike's been doing that for forever, so he obviously knows there's some benefit to it. What made you think? Okay, I want to hinge a bunch now. I want to go in and and write a book on it, kind of, sort of, for instance. I want to go into my woods, and, and, you know, how do you decide, like, this is what I want to do, I'm going to get after it?
3: Well, um, I just saw examples on other people's property. I toured Tony Lapratt's property. I saw Jake Ellinger's property. I saw Mike Hart's property, and I saw the value that comes from doing this, but, uh, you know, Jake and I have worked together a lot over the years, and... Um You know, we really developed our thinking over a two or three year period, and we had some friends that helped um h- helped us with that thinking but uh like Alan Verce from uh, Jackson, Michigan taught us a lot um we developed over time to an understanding that um and and let me just parenthesize this because you said you had people on that had done hinge cutting and they um maybe hadn't had such good results well. Correct. Uh, Yeah. You know, I know people that pick up a pool stick and try and play pool, and they don't have good results. That doesn't mean pool isn't a good game to play or golf.
4: It (laughs) means that you haven't gotten
3: very good at it yet, and so you're disappointed in it, but that's not a knock on the game. And so what I tend to see a lot of people doing is say, you shouldn't hinge cut because I tried it, and it didn't work. Well, there are about ten ways – that people normally uh, go out there and they make their hinge cutting not work. They cut too big of trees. The trees don't stay together, and they say, "Well, the hinge cut didn't work." Or they leave the big trees. They hinge cut the little trees underneath them. Well, guess what? Those trees are little because they can't grow very well. And when you compromise uh, under the shade, and when you compromise them by hinge cutting, they don't. Uh, they die in a year or two. Yeah, you have good. to let sun. You have to let sunlight in. Right. Or they, hinge, they they cut too far through the tree or it falls over and uh, breaks off. And they go, well, hens cutting doesn't work. Or uh, I, I, could, <laughs> I could go on and on with this. They, one of the big things they do is they hens cut too low. I want to make a bedding area. And, uh, oh, just drop trees. Just hens cut trees. It'll make a bedding area. Well, they hens cut them two feet off the ground. And a deer can't sit under it. Uh, so rabbits use it. And... Uh, so all these different ways that you can do something wrong are being done, and they're even being taught by some people. And so really what you have to do is back up and say, what am I hinge cutting for? Okay. Uh, and, and there are uh, three main things that we hinge cut for. Uh, and let me go into parentheses again. Most of the trees that I cut when I go to uh, woods, your deer habitat, I'm not going to hinge cut. Most of them are being conventionally felled, and if they make good logs, they're skidded out. If they don't, that makes wonderful deer habitat we leave them laying on the ground. Either way, we're cutting conventionally cutting most of the big trees, and then we start hinge cutting. When we start hinge cutting in a spot, we go, what are we doing this for? There are three things. We can make a bear. These guys that have tried to make... Um, Um, bedding areas by cutting the trees 18 inches or two feet off the ground are really creating barriers. I have created areas of two or three acres with the intention of not allowing deer in there because I had a poacher nearby. And I would go in every winter for three years, never saw a single deer track in that area. I can stop a deer from going in an area by hinge cutting in a way that a lot of people have hinge cut for bedding and said hinge cutting doesn't work. Well, it worked because you did it uh, for barriers and not bedding. So you can block deer from using an area. You can make deer circle around a spot to get nearer your stand by hinge cutting and crisscrossing uh, hinge cut trees in such a way that the deer, even though they could, might be able to jump over it or bound through it, they don't because it's easier for them to go around. So the barriers are a very important thing. Bedding. For bedding, we hinge cut trees, and we usually uh, hinge cut them so that the trunks are going to be roughly about five feet off the ground because a deer is only about two and a half feet tall at the tallest, but they want to be able to stand up there. A deer wants to be able to stand up underneath that um, overhang uh, and make a bound, and as he bounds, he's going to jump in there. He wants to escape a predator. Everything about their lives... Has to do with being a prey animal. They're thinking about it all the time. When am I going to get pounced on by a saber toothed tiger or a golden eagle? And by the way, that's one of the reasons I think they like to be under overhangs is because they co evolved with giant birds that could swoop down from the sky. Uh, so, uh, a lot of deer like to lay underneath overhanging cover, and that's another myth that we hear, um, and even some deer habitat experts saying deer don't like to lay over, under overhead cover. Well, yes, they do. You probably haven't made it, um, uh, correctly yet. Uh, so for bedding, you want to be cutting, and we tend to cut domes for doe families about 15, 20 yards in diameter. And for bucks, we make little individual spots. Some deer like to lay with overhead covers, some don't. But what you're doing is thinking about, as you're cutting these trees, uh, making them in such a way that they'll be able to feel protected when they're laying in it, but they'll be able to escape from it quickly. The third kind of hinge cutting is, these are major uh, hinge cutting classification. The third type is for transition areas. And for transition areas, what we're talking about, is that area between food and bedding. Uh, a, a dull family only thinks about two things in their entire lives. They've got a little teeny brain, not that, you know, about the size of a tennis ball. If they're moving, they're either going from cover to food, from food to cover, or from food to food, usually not from cover to cover unless they get chased out. That's all they do their entire life, a doe thinks about that and nothing else, food and cover, 363 days a year, for two days she thinks about sex. On the other hand, a buck thinks about sex most of the year, but he really thinks about it a lot for three months, so that's all he's doing for three months is running around looking for doe families. So he can find out whether they want to have sex with him or not. So the doe family controls everything about where bucks are going to be. So what we're doing is manipulating doe families. And so we have a bedding area. We have a feeding area. Uh, we have uh, a transition area. And what I like to do with transition areas, let's say I have a bedding area of five, six, seven acres. I want three or four spots coming out of that. Where I have hinge cut trees and let light in to make heavier cover. And then lateral to that, it's open. Open areas. I, I want there to be canopy everywhere except where my sand's going to be sitting on a lane between bedding and food, or between food and food, uh, so that I can get there to use that. And for that, we hinge cut uh, less. Ineffectively for creating bedding spots. Uh, what we tend to do is make a trail feed that hinge trees away from that trail, so that they fall perpendicular to the trail, so that as the deer is walking along, they feel like they're in cover, but they can escape laterally. What you don't want to do is create a tunnel effect.
4: Sure. So these
3: are the three kinds of hinge cutting we're doing: as barriers, transition zones, and bedding. And then there are other things like. Um, edge feathering for example that we do along the edges of food plots or anywhere that we want to create a visual uh, barrier we might have a human trail and we feather along that trail to to not allow deer to see us as we're walking the trail
2: now on that on that transitional that that last category you covered there you're leaving the areas on both sides of the corridor open assuming the deer will avoid those open areas and more so come down your corridor. Is that correct? Exactly. Yep. Okay, so that's what you mean earlier when you said some open areas, some not, and then, right. and then these these three different types of hinge cuts. Uh, real quick, the barrier, the bedding, the transition. Those, you hinge cut those trees all at different heights. Is that correct? Uh, or are two of the three the well, same? Or what if, heights are those? If
3: you're cre- if you're creating a barrier, it's real easy to think of just creating a barrier. In other words. You crisscross it at different heights. You have trees that you cut at one foot, two feet, three feet, four feet, five feet, and pretty much you've created a fence there so the deer won't go through it. You can crisscross them like that at all levels over a two- or three-acre area, and they won't go in there either. Uh, In a transition area, you want it to be enough cover to make them feel comfortable walking through it in daytime but not so good a cover that they feel like laying down in it all day because you don't want them laying down in a transition area near your stand. So what I always say is, you know, uh, 50, 70 yards away, I create a five-star hotel for them to bed in all day, and then I create a two- or three-star hotel for them to walk through in daylight so that if they got a choice, they'll always go to the five-star hotel for the same price, walking an extra 50 or 70 yards.
2: Hmm. yeah that makes sense okay now it's maybe kind of a general question and maybe there's way too much playing that needs to go into figuring out where you should start cutting how do you go about that jim how do you walk into a woods and say don't cut there cut right here or uh, that's kind of the the struggle i've been having is i just don't want to screw it up the first time
3: if you if you don't have a plan, then you're just randomly doing stuff. So the first thing I want to know is I'm I'm looking at an aerial of the area and the first question I ask is if I were a buck that wanted to move, let's say, a two mile distance in that area, what how would I do it? And that's almost always along the creek bottom because that's the area with heavy cover, especially in agricultural areas, but even in uh forested areas. Because sunlight gets in near a creek very often, uh, those are the uh, areas with the best cover. So deer are going to move along this this creek. Uh, a huge mistake that hunters make is to make their trail along the creek. Because that's the deer's territory. Let them have it. Um, you come in perpendicular to that creek and you'll do a lot better. As soon as you create human habitat along the creek, you've, you've basically, for daylight usage, destroyed a pathway that the deer would normally take in daylight so you have this picture of how deer are naturally going to use it and then you look at your property what's the size of the property what are the neighbors doing uh if the neighbor's on one side uh, i'll tell you about a property i had a 47 acre property in lenaway county uh and, and absolutely uh expect to see a four and a half year old every year when i hunt out there even though it's in heavily hunted area of michigan uh I had a neighbor who, in fact, I told you about him. He was the guy that I met, um, who who's the first guy that ever talked about uh, quality deer management to me. He was on one side of me, and some poachers are on the other side of me. I set up my deer habitat because Eric on uh, the west side of me was growing all kinds of food. And these guys were sneaking in the woods on the east side of me, so I created a bedding area exactly right next to that fence line on the east side, so thick that those guys would not sit there and hunt into it because they couldn't see into it. Heavy bedding, and I freely created trails right into my neighbor's property on the west side because I knew he wasn't going to shoot any of the um, young bucks. He was more selective than I was. So... My deer traffic on that property, in the morning, 100% of the deer that I ever saw were moving from west to east to spend the day in my bedding area. And virtually 100% of the deer in the evening would be moving from east to west to go take advantage of the fields that my neighbor Eric was growing. Hmm. I might have done that completely different if I had... Uh, neighbors on each side of me that were QDM neighbors. Right. So you have to look at everything about your property and draw a plan out about how you want deer to move on it based on natural features, on um, human um, features, like, you know, which neighbors are going to be helpful to you and which are going to be harmful. You put all that together, then you look at your property and decide, how can I get into that property? I need areas that a human can walk through both at night and daytime, and it's probably not going to run into a deer. I need areas where I can ambush deer. I need areas where the deer can bed. I need areas where the deer can feed. And you lay all that out on an aerial first. Then you know how to hinge up each area. If it's a bedding area, you're going to do it a certain way. If it's a transition area, you're going to do it another way way. If you don't want deer to go across a certain area, you leave it open and don't cut it at all. If you want to funnel deer uh, finely into a spot, you uh, do some barrier cuts. So your plan tells you exactly what kind of cutting you need to do in various areas.
0: Nice. Thank you. Now, Jim, once uh, we get our plan in place, what's the best time of year to start this and uh, what kind of tools are necessary to get this done?
3: well, I always say that the best time to hinge cut is when you have a saw in your hand period
0: <laughs> I hear all okay.
3: kinds of um, theories and people say only hinge cut on days on the going and this and that and the other thing uh, the only thing that inhibits me from and that that includes conventional cutting or hinge cutting the only th- the only thing that I take into consideration is. Uh, the, the deer on my property. Uh, so, uh, bucks are gonna go into, uh, uh, hard antler in September. I try to be out of the woods, uh, by mid August. Right.
4: Uh,
3: and, uh, especially in sensitive areas. Other than that, from, January 2nd, the day the deer hunting season ends, because I don't want to be out there either during deer season because I could I could push young bucks out and they'll run off to another property and get shot. For so
4: sure.
3: I, I stay out of the woods. January 2nd in Michigan is usually the first, uh, the end of hunting season. From that day until August 15th, any day that I have a chainsaw on my hand, I'll cut. And I've never seen, I've cut tens of thousands of hinge cut trees I've never seen a difference in survival, whether it's, uh, you know, nine degrees out or uh, 90 degrees out. It doesn't matter. Uh, I can get those trees to survive. It's it's technique-oriented for the most part.
0: Wow. Okay. And uh, what kind of tools uh, are needed? I know you talk in your videos about uh, guys can do it with a handsaw, and uh, some guys might need to go that route, but... What would you recommend for the guy that has a you know fairly decent budget that uh, could help him out get the job done the best way?
3: Well, um, if, if you're going to cut very large trees, which I don't recommend unless you really know what you're doing, you need a um, a, a saw that can handle those trees. If you're just hinge cutting, it, let's say you've had loggers come in and take out all your big trees, then a small chainsaw. I use a, a steel 201T, a top handle arborist saw. Uh, but any small chainsaw, you get very tiring when your hands cut because you're actually um, reaching up a lot and hinging at four or five feet off the ground. Uh, so uh, you can get tired really fast. And the, the thing sure. that causes causes the most injuries with chainsaws is fatigue. And so anything that keeps you from being fatigued, I use a handsaw a lot. I use um, a Silky Zubat, which is a Japanese steel handsaw, and I've had them go years without being just as sharp as the day I bought them. Uh, I can cut through a six-inch tree in just a few seconds with with one of these saws. But there are other brands as well. Uh, But get a good handsaw. Don't go down and buy a $15 handsaw at um, the local hardware store you'll you'll get nothing but frustrated with it after a few days because it's soft steel and it'll get dull just from cutting through wood uh get a really good handsaw and you can be very effective with just a handsaw but a small chainsaw is, is good too so for those of you that can afford it a a um, um farm size chainsaw that you would use for uh maybe a twenty inch that you would use for cutting firewood is Uh, Something you can use to cut uh, larger trees with, which should always be cut conventionally with a face cut. Don't walk up to a 20-inch tree and hinge cut it. Uh, You're just asking for trouble, and there's no reason uh, for it to stay alive. No reason to hinge cut it, because it'll create great cover on its own if you leave it laying aside, or if it has a, a good log in it, you can have that skidded out.
0: All right. And what about uh, other accessories to help us out, like wedges, hooks, mallets, well, things like a, that? You
3: need all that. I recommend everybody read uh, a book called um, To Fell a Trees. To Fell a tree, fel tree is called the tree on um, uh, Feller's Bible. And uh, all the equipment you need to fell a tree is in there. All the information you need is in there. Um, I'm trying to think of the author's name. I can't think of it right now. But uh, to fell a tree. It's available at any um, logging supply um, place like Cheryl Tree. And um, read that book before you walk out in the woods with a chainsaw. And you'll have all the equipment you need in terms of wedges and et cetera. There's one additional tool that we use for hinge cutting uh called a habitat hook. You can look up habitat uh, hook online. I've used them for years. They're a, a hook-shaped hook shape. um device that's anywhere from uh, 7 or 8 feet long to about 15 feet long that uh, you can pull a tree down with. Look up uh, habitat hook. And we pull or push trees down with that hook. Okay. Uh, Other than that, um, wedges are one of your best friends. You can take, um, you can move the top of a like 30 or 40 feet tree. You can move 10 or 12 feet with a one inch wedge. And uh, so a lot of times we want to fall trees against their lean, and you need wedges to do that. So when you're felling larger trees, 15 inches uh, and larger, you almost always want to get a wedge in behind it in case that you have um, misjudged the lean of the tree. And you get that in there, and that won't close up on your saw that way. One of the biggest problems people have is they – spend an hour cutting and then two hours getting their stuck chainsaw out of the tree. Well, that almost never has to happen uh, uh, <laughs> it, if you use wedges effectively. Use plastic wedges, you get them for 4 or $5 dollars each at Tracta Supply.
0: Okay. And uh, safety gear goes without saying for all of our listeners out there, like Absolutely. Jim said. Learn, learn
3: protection, learn helmet, um, and chaps, they're very important.
0: All right, Jim, let's get into About the
3: uh, – my, uh, my girlfriend does a lot of uh, cutting uh, – firewood cutting behind her house, and I bought her uh, chaps this year
0: uh, to make sure that she was safe out there. Yeah, very important for sure. Now, let's get into how you actually make the cut. Is there a certain percentage that you go through on uh, trying to get it before you push it over with your habitat hook or uh, well, what's not, your nominally for –
3: Nominally, I say 70% to 75% through the tree. Here's the thing. If you got a tree, let's say you're cutting a a 5-inch tree, a 5-inch diameter tree at breast height. You cut through that tree, and let's say it's leaning back towards you and you want to push it over. You never, ever want to cut far enough that it releases on its own because, in that case, it'll fall back on your saw, and you've got a pinch saw. Right. And you've made the hinge too weak. Uh, After you cut a lot of these trees, you'll get a feel for when you're reaching the point where that tree's about to release. If it's leaning forward, it means it's going to release and fall to the ground. If it's leaning backwards, it's going to release and go back into your saw. Either way, you need to practice cutting and get a feel for when you have to stop when you've made the hinge weak enough to push the tree over but not so weak that it's going to fall over on its own. Okay. Now, with that said, you'll see a lot of videos of me uh, walking through a woods and cutting tree after tree after tree and letting them fall on their own. I'm doing that without any expectation of that tree staying alive or staying together. I'm just trying to get the canopy out of the way. So I w- quickly walk through and buzz down hinge-cut trees. But if you want that tree to survive... And you don't want to have a lot of headaches and frustration from back leaners. Uh, Cut about 70% of the way through. Stop before it's going to fall on its own, forwards or backwards or sideways. And then coax it over with either wedges for a larger tree or with um, a habitat hook for smaller trees.
0: Okay. One thing that comes to mind on my property, I've got a lot of maples that uh, have shot up from a clear cut. And there's so many of them, but they've been able to uh, get, you know, 25, 30 feet tall and, and get get the canopy out of the way. I struggle with having enough space to even get the tree to come down to make some holes in the canopy. What, what can we do for a spot where they're just so closely grown together and we struggle with that?
3: Well, uh, you have to look for a spot where you can get them down. How, what size trees are you talking about? Maples. But what size?
0: Uh, sugars and reds, mostly.
3: No, I mean size, diameter.
0: Oh, size-wise? Uh, they they range anywhere from, you know, 10 inches to 15, 18 inches.
3: Okay, so um, usually you're able to find one starter spot. You walk around in there and you look around and you find uh, one little bit of a hole that you can fell a tree into. And then that opens up another one for the next tree. So you really have to carefully walk through and look at all that.
4: If you can't find okay. that, if
3: they're all intact trees, too close together, then what you want to do is find a spot where you can get one over. And, and I talk in my book about uh, how to um, cut a, uh, a tree that's a leaner. And what you do is um, you have to release it from underneath the tree and do it a little bit at a time and work your way down. So um, you can create holes, and sometimes you have to start with a leaner. Uh, if you're going to do that, don't do it as a hinge cut. Do it so you're going to take, a, a let's say, a 10-inch tree, put a face cut in it, find a tree that can fall as far as you can get it to fall, even if it's going to get hung up. Make sure you cut it all the way through because if you hinge cut it, it's going to have upward pressure on it. So once once that tree's down and it's leaning, then, uh, you can cut from underneath the tree about three or four feet at a time and slowly work that tree down. Or just by getting it leaning, you can go back, uh, you've now created a little bit of opening in the sky and you can start to fall trees completely to the ground. You can leave the leaner there as long okay. as it's, it's well hung up. I mean, it, it really takes some creativity you've got to walk in there and ask, uh, how can I start a hole here that I can now fell other trees into?
0: Right. Now, is there any uh, tricks to avoid breaking off or uh, softening the fall of the trees?
3: Well, I've already told you about the main trick is to not cut too far through it. Right. So you want to keep enough hinge so it's going to hold together when it comes down. Almost in every case, when I hinge cut a tree that I want to keep intact, I'm falling it onto another tree or I'm brushing it down through some other trees. So I choose a spot for it to go down to where it can fall slowly and slowly slide down through the branches of another tree. Oftentimes, uh, if we're making a bedding spot, for example, where we want to create a dome of trees, we start with a larger tree. We fell it conventionally. And then we land the tops of smaller trees onto the tops that are sticking up from that tree, and that causes them to land softly. If you go past 90 degrees, it oftentimes pinches the circulation of the tree off. So you want to have your trees uh, try and design it so that they're leaning upwards a little bit when they fall, and they softly land on another tree or they brush down through another tree. Okay. But the the main thing... Just to not cut too far through, and most people do.
0: Right. Now, do we have to uh, pay attention to the sap flow or the fluid for many of these trees for any reason, or is that insignificant?
3: Unless you want to make maple syrup, I don't. <laughs>
0: okay. It <think> matters. <laughs> All but right. Like how I about said, I've chairs?
3: I cut when I have the time and a chainsaw in my hands.
0: Period. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I would like now, to how about often this? challenge
3: people. Tell me why you know I don't get it, and they make up some theory. Well, there's turgor in the um in the vascular system of the tree when there's t- sap flowing. Yeah, well, don't pinch the hinge, and it won't matter if there's turgor right. in there or not. So, so it's really about not cutting too far through the tree, having it come down slowly. And keeping that hinge attack intact, and if you do that in August, you'll get the same result as you did in. I've never seen any. I, I'm looking all the time. I'm a good observer. I think I'm a scientist, and I I've never figured out a single uh, thing uh, that I would do in March that I wouldn't do in August. I I just haven't seen it.
2: Now, Jim, Jim, I have a a question on that. When you bring a tree down in the summertime and it has the full canopy, leafy canopy, I've heard of people say that they brought the canopy to the ground and now they're covering up the ground, still shading the ground from getting the sunlight. Um, Do you worry about that, or do you do it in small sections to where you're still having sunlight reach the ground around it, or how does that affect it?
3: Well, certainly for that summer, you won't have anything growing but the next spring um all kinds of things are going to come up out of the ground because sunlight is getting to the ground and and over time that tree will grow more leaves but generally you're going to see about 10 percent of the foliage on a tree after hinge cutting it uh as you did the first year most of it is not going to go to leaves it's going to go to um to new twigs and things like that so you got a lot of time in the spring for all kinds of stuff to grow up that wouldn't have been growing otherwise when that tree was upright and um uh you you also creating um uh, sprouts from the um from the trunk so a lot of these trees are um you know they're, they're able to send ground sprouts up from the root system and once you cut off you know, you're now only feeding, you know, 10% of the, what the tree was before. Now, a lot more ground sprouts are going to come up with a lot of species, quite a few species. But, yeah, uh, you no, know, you're going to about, that next summer, you're going to have probably 10 to 20% of the amount of foliage on the tree that you did before. Okay. So, uh, plenty of sunlight is getting through. I look at areas that are um, heavily hinge cut, and I, they don't look any different to me than um, uh, a um, clear cut in a lot of ways in terms of the number of sprouts and stuff that come from the ground. With the additional feature that you, you have the residual of the tree there, when you clear cut, you're dragging the tree away and you get a lot less cover. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can make very, very thick areas. Uh, The mistake most people make is not letting enough sunlight in. So they they hinge cut a tree, and they're underneath the canopy still, and then they look at it the next year and say, oh, it had all kinds of leaf on it. It must have um, suppressed the growth of other trees underneath it. No, it's probably that you didn't. You still had too much canopy. That's what I usually see.
0: Okay. Now let's cover a little bit about the bad cuts that we want to avoid, like barber chairs, explain what those are, and some of the other uh, hazardous things we want to stay away from.
3: Well, a barber chair is a situation where you, when you cut through a tree, you reach the center of the tree. Let's say it has a little bit of forward lean, and that's usually where a barber chair comes from, is a tree that has forward lean. So that means you're cutting into the back of the tree on the side that it's leaning away from. So as you cut through the tree. It reaches a point where your saw is now at the center of the tree, and the center of the tree is the weakest part of the tree. That's soft wood in the center; the hard uh, wood is on the outside. So once you get to the center, uh, there's a lot of strain on that leaning tree, and what can happen is it can split upwards. And when it splits upwards, the tree starts to fall over, and that um, butt of the tree can fly backwards, and uh, when the top of the tree hits, it can spring off the tree and cause all kinds of problems and heartache for the um, the tree cutters. So uh, to avoid barber chairs, which are very dangerous, there are two things, well, really one main thing. But uh, the first thing is don't cut a tree with too much forward lean. Second, cut quickly through the center of the tree. Get to that 70% as quick as you can. In 2011, uh, there was an OSHA report of a logger who was cutting a tree, and he was doing a conventional face cut in the front, but uh, he was cutting from the back of the tree, and he ran out of gas. And when he did, the the saw stopped. And when the saw stopped, Brain started developing right at that point where the saw hit stopped, and the tree split upwards, and it killed him. Um, now, for a logger, that means you should have plenty of gaps in your saw, for all of us. Uh, but what it tells you is you need to quit, cut quickly through the soft center of the tree and get as much of the hardwood on the other side as you can holding the tree up so that when it tries to split upwards, it'll be um, – in, in in the harder part of the tree towards the face of the tree, about the front 30% of the tree. So having a sharp saw is critical. If your saw is throwing sawdust, you're in a very dangerous situation. It should be throwing chips of wood. Mm-hmm. A sharp saw is number one thing. Plenty of fuel in the saw so you can get all the way through what you're trying to do. And then cut as quickly as you can. And then stop as quickly as you can once you've gotten through the heart of the tree and you now have 30% left stop before it falls. So it's a fine line, and it cut through quickly. That's the main way to avoid barber chairs, cut through quickly. And um, the other thing is to make sure that the tree is not leaning too much.
2: So what do you do with those leaner trees then, Jim?
3: Well, if they're, um, you can put a face cut in them if they're a larger tree, and do what's called a plunge cut. And uh, okay. To do a plunge cut, you plunge through the center of the tree, you keep uh, and you cut, you create the hinge and then cut backwards. And I, I describe how to do that in my book and I have a video online uh, that I've gotten great reviews from loggers. Um, plunge cutting is a way to achieve that. Or avoid cutting a big leaner. Um, uh, small leaners, you can pull in the other direction with a hook. Cut it from the lean direction, away from its lean, and then pull it down. Or push it down with
2: the hook. Yeah, you actually go into a lot of different detail in your book on multiple ways to cut and how not to cut. Uh, very informative, and you also mentioned cutting high to be safe, or or just cutting high in general as a as like a safety feature. Yeah, sounds kind mean? of
3: strange. Uh, I, I do have an illustration in my book of um, you know, it, if you're in an ocean job uh, site you are not supposed to cut up above your head. now the facts are that climbers who are in a much more dangerous situation do cut above their uh, shoulders all the time so they're climbing 60 or 80 feet up in a tree and they're cutting upwards to cut a branch off but when you're on the ground it's absolutely forbidden by OSHA to do that so it's an interesting thing. There are different criteria uh, for climbing than there are for on-the-ground work. And it makes perfect sense if you're doing logging. You never have to cut above your shoulders like that. But when you're hinge cutting and you're purposely creating a situation where you might create a barber chair, by cutting up higher, that barber chair is going to be happening above your hip. And so it's not going to kick back right in your face. It's going to be up above you, and it gives you more time to get away from it. So as odd as it may seem, uh, in, when you're in a situation where you're about to create a barber chair very possibly, just because of the way you're cutting, not making a face cut, uh, it's actually safer, in my opinion, to cut a little higher.
2: No, that makes sense. That way, like you said, if it does barber chair, it's going to be above your head. So, right. I see what that means. You okay. still have
3: to get out of the way of
2: it. <laughs> you should still wear a helmet either way, but.
3: Yeah, but you have more time to the up above your head.
2: So tell me, tell me about a close call that you've had in the woods with a barber chair or with anything else like that. I mean, cutting as many trees as you've cut, you've had to see some stuff. I can say I've never, I've, ne-
3: I've never had a close call with a barber chair, and I think. Good. Uh, wow. The risk of barber chairs is is. Way overstated uh, because even on videos, and I've looked at thousands of videos online of people having accidents, barber chairs happen in slow motion. Uh, you know, they can't happen not once. They don't instantly kick back like uh, somebody swinging a baseball bat at you uh, from behind. Uh, they're happening, and you can see them happen Never had a problem with the barber chair. I have a little teeny, like, 15-second video online where I happen to be standing in front of a video camera, and a tree that had gotten loosened up before is about a 25-foot tall tree, about no more than three or four inches in diameter, came crashing down two feet in front of me, the top of it, uh, top one-third of it, and I just turned and looked at the camera like, you know, that could have killed me. Uh, could have killed me, and, wow. and yet it's totally unforeseeable because it was a tree that had been, a dead tree that, I think it was a dead tree that had been weakened by another tree falling.
4: So, no, I've mm-hmm. never had
3: a barber chair that I felt posed a risk to me. Another time, I was cutting a very large tree, conventionally cutting it, and as I went to um uh, uh that tree went a little bit sideways on me, and as I went to walk away from it, I slipped and fell on the ground. And uh, I started rolling on the ground. Uh, but, again, that was a conventional cut. It wasn't a hinge cut. Uh, and, obviously, I wasn't killed by it. So.
2: Oh, wow. That's pretty much get the heck out of the way as soon as you start making that cut. Right. Or finish that cut, yeah. I should say.
3: Yeah. Well... And anticipation is super important when you're cutting. And I'm talking about preserving the tree, that anticipation. I'm reaching a point where it's about to release. And uh, keeping your eye on the tree. And I I once uh, made a video, and I noticed that when I was in a a woods cutting trees, as I was walking along, I was looking up every few seconds. And uh, I actually did a video where I put the words, look up. Look up every time I looked up because that's what you need. You need to be constantly paying attention uh, to what's above you and what's happening when you're making the cut. You're looking for little teeny nuances of how the tree is responding to the cut. And if you see that thing start to move, start to barber chair, for example, what I do is I cut a little faster and I get through the barber chair. That's the fastest thing I can do to avoid it. Because if it's starting to split, if it's starting to feel some pressure and I cut past that split, it's probably not going to split anymore Uh when I when I see the tree just start to relax a little bit in a forward motion, I know to stop now and go ahead and get my hook and pull it down or have the guy on the hook pull it down. So it's really about paying attention is the main safety factor and understanding where the stresses in the tree are and watching for them
2: no i think that's very important thanks for that i uh i'm kind of green in this area so it's it's important to to hear all this stuff and especially that other book you mentioned on how to fell a tree I'm yeah
3: i remembered his name too Jeff jepson Okay. Jeff Jepson, Tofella Tree, everybody everybody, walks out in the woods with a chainsaw should have read that book.
2: Perfect. Now, we kind of covered some cons of hinge cutting, uh, kind of some rumors of, of why other people don't do it. Um, we've covered some benefits. Say you've hinged, and now you have your all your hinge cut areas, whether it's a corridor, bedding, or... Um, a barrier, what do you do for maintenance? How do you check on these and make sure they're not falling into uh, an area where the deer will just totally avoid it? What do you do?
3: Well, uh, you, have, you have to. You know, one of the worst ideas that anybody ever uh, created for small property owners was create a sanctuary and don't ever go into it. Those That concept was developed in the South in Texas and across the South where people had thousands of acres, and they would say, okay, I'm going to take this 300 acres and I'm going to make sanctuary on it. When you have a 40, 60, 80-acre property, and let's say you create a 10- or 12-acre sanctuary in it, you have to be in there every single year making sure. So, for example, I make, and this is what you're getting at, I think, I make a a dough bending spot. Then I go in year one, they're using it. Second year, we get a storm and the, one of the main um, support trees has broken off and fallen down in the middle of it and they're not using it anymore. I need to go into that sanctuary and I need to see that and I need to fix that. So I'll go in and cut it up, um, uh, get in there with the chainsaw and open it up so that I can get those deer used again. Another thing that happens is a tree falls down across a trail in your sanctuary, and maybe it's a trail that leads into a bedding spot. A deer needs for a larger bedding spot for doe family. It needs three escape directions. For a buck spot, it needs a front door and a back door. If a log falls down across that, you won't see deer using that anymore. So you got to go and cut a hole. In the spot. I've seen the same thing with trails, and I I was. Um, Doing a video one time, Randy Banner Bean was following me through my uh, sanctuary, and we found a spot that was completely overgrown with um, multiflora rolls and uh, other kinds of briars and stuff. And that spot had been open just a couple of months earlier. It was a trail, and a log had fallen down across it. And that was a trail that led up to my stand site. So if I don't go in there in late summer, and open that up, make sure that trail's open. I could sit in that sand all day long, and I'd never have a deer come out on the trail that I thought that I had made that they were using. Right. And that also points out that when you have a, you know, let's say you're in an area where you've let uh, sunlight into it, deer maintain their own trails. And I've got videos of deer walking along, chewing as they go. Uh, they will keep hmm. a trail open for themselves by browsing it. So if you have multi-flora rolls and raspberry bushes and stuff like that, within two or three weeks time, they'll completely occlude a trail if the deer aren't using it and it's usually because a branch or something has fallen down and stopped them from using it. They, they maintain That's their own trails beautifully.
4: Hmm.
3: And what I do is every fall, um, in, uh, usually in August, I walk into my sanctuary and I take, um, herbicide and I spray all the trails and um with one year herbicide you can buy it in the brown jug at um it's a Mazapir at um as glyphosate and a masapir and you can get that uh, tractor supply or any place like that just put a one foot wide strip through there and keep the herbicide there and then from then on all through the summer the deer will keep that open for you
0: now, on the subject of these trails, Jim, I saw on one of your videos that, that you go into some of these bedding areas, and once you get everything hinged the way that you want it, you start cutting out the trails and using a backpack sprayer yes. to make these trails. Is Can you go into detail, you know, how wide do you make them uh, in the process that you use for sawing and spraying through those Yeah, what I do
3: is I I go into my sanctuary every August,
0: and um, I take
3: a, I have a DR mower, a walk-behind brush mower. These things will cut up to two-inch diameter um, trees. And uh, it's very important, when you go in and you take out the canopy in the woods, mark the trails. And I uh, used to use paint. I don't use it anymore because it doesn't even last a year sometimes. I use ribbons You know, trail marker, uh, orange ribbon. And all my trails are marked because if something does happen and the deer stop using that trail, it'll be, you know, because a branch fell down or something, you won't even know where it is because everything will be so thick in your woods. Yeah, completely lose track. Wow. And I go through every year and with the walk behind and I have a little mount on it and I mount a small chainsaw on it. And I, I mow through there, and then I come behind, and I put herbicide. And I make interconnected trails among all the beds in a bedding area. This only takes one day to do this, so let's say, for a five- to seven-acre thing. So it might sound like a big deal, but it's not. You just go in there one day a year and um, groom your trails. And the deer will use those trails without question. And then you dig okay. Exactly. Using bar- hinge cut barriers or skidded uh, trees that, if I don't have a tree available, I'll skid a tree in there and block a spot, create those open woods areas, and then transition zones with uh, hinge cuts out of the uh, sanctuary. And I might make that 60 yards wide, and I've got to stand right in the middle of that so I can shoot 30 yards in either direction when they step out.
4: Nice. Excellent.
3: And that, that's the... That's the approach they're going to take, and um, so if I were going to do that, I had a 60-wide yard swath running from the bedding area to a feeding area, and I'm in the middle of it, let's say, so I can shoot 30 yards in either direction, and I will create a barrier right underneath my tree about 15 yards in each direction to make sure they don't walk right up on me, and they're going to skirt around me. Hmm. So they're forced. By nature, by their natural desire to be in heavy cover, to not walk through the open area 50 yards away, but instead to walk through this covered area. And I've dictated exactly with my trails how they're going to walk through it. And I even will create a little hook in the trail at some point so that they have to turn broadside to me in just the right way, or maybe they're quartering away a little bit. So you can groom these trails. Exactly how you want them in reference to your stand,
2: no that's pretty awesome, and you actually go go through and plan you know the entire strategy from the bed all the way to you know the the destination food, the ambush sites along the way, all of that in your book, right
3: all of it is defined yep. yeah by the by the landowner um this is the footprints where the deer footprints are going to be and i've gone many times in uh january uh right after the season by the way that's the best time to scout these bedding areas and stuff is uh within one week after the season is when you need to go in and look, because they will completely change everything, their bedding areas, uh, as soon as they feel the hunting pressure uh, go down. Within seven to ten days, they're bedded in completely different locations than they uh, would otherwise. They move right up on the food sources. So what I do is go in there with a camera, and I, I document that, yeah, I I'm the one that mowed this trail here. I herbicide treated it for two or three years. And every footprint that's going from that bedding area to this food plant is along that line that I created. Um, and you can do that. Now, yeah, deer, you know, get chased by a buck or something and they run through the brush. But I'm talking about those, those heavy, heavily used trails. Uh, you can see it written right in the ground. That's awesome. And by the way, if you're going to do something like this management thing, I often hear hunters or people uh, suggesting, oh, you need to watch the property for a couple of years. Well, if you're doing what I'm talking about doing, you don't have to watch the property. You're going to tell them how how they're going to move through it with whatever new that's thing you're doing. It doesn't matter how they were using it, except to a certain extent. Like I said earlier about, say, a creek bottom or something, yeah, yeah that's a natural feature you want to use. But I don't have to, I, I, you know, most people that have some experience on this, they can walk onto any 40, 60, 80 acre property and tell you exactly how the deer were using it last fall. Because it's written in the ground. Right. It's written in the rubs, It's written in the licking branches. It's written in the bedding spots that have hair in them. We know exactly where they were going. So don't sit there and when you get a new property, don't sit there and stare at it for a couple of years. Uh, walk the ground, find where the bedding areas are, uh, but more importantly, create your own bedding areas, your own trails, your own food sources, so that you're dictating how the deer go with reference to how you're going to get to it from your parking spot or your your home or whatever. You need to be able to get back to a spot and then make the deer come to you. Don't walk through your property because they're naturally using it this way, so you're going to walk all the way to the back of your property. Create a feature that will make – that whatever feature there is at the back of your property when you bought it that makes them go there, you can recreate that right behind your house or right near your parking spot if you want to and bring them to you. That's what this um, small property management is all about is manipulating this little teeny brain of this deer using food and cover to make him do what you want and move the way you want him to.
2: Well said. Now, Jim, I want to be respectful of your time, and we've gone uh, into a lot of, of great stuff here. Is there anything else you want to cover before we wrap up?
3: I'll tell you what, I'm headed out in just a very few minutes here. I've got an hour and a half drive to, to Lansing, and I'm meeting with them. Let them go, let them grow um, board members uh, in Lansing, so I probably have to get going pretty quick here.
2: Okay, well, Jib, let's wrap up and talk about how people can find you and your book, if you don't mind, and that'll be good.
3: Yeah, I have a website called ExtremeDeerHabitat.com, just the way it sounds, Extreme Deer Habitat. And uh, on there is a buy the book tab. You can buy the book there. Uh, I also have a a very active YouTube site. um, I'm up to, on one video, I'm up to 4 million views with it. Uh that's uh, uh actually, a, actually a kind of an ancillary to the deer thing. It's on um how how to keep from having uh, a severe poison ivy reaction when you're out working in the woods.
4: Uh
3: but I have many uh videos on there and it's um forward slash extreme deer habitat. I also have a Facebook page um, that is uh, facebook.com forward slash extreme deer habitat.
2: That's great. And your book, is that still for sale?
3: It is for sale. It's an e-book. It's available at at my website uh, on a tab called Buy the Book. And you go in there, uh, I think it's 1999 or something like that, and um, uh, you buy it and you download it. And it's a very powerful thing to have an e-book. And it's the wave of the future for uh, teaching books because... It has 48 videos attached to it. So as you're reading through this book and you want to see a chainsaw technique, you click on a link and a video comes, uh, comes right up. So uh, also websites, you can click in the website. So there is never going to be a paper version of that book. It's always going to be an ebook because it's a better, great. better experience for people. Great.
2: Well, that's awesome, Jim. I want to thank you again so much for coming on. I do appreciate your time. And uh, you know, drive safe today, and uh, fight the good fight as we grow. All right, uh... all right. Another episode in the books with Doctor Jim Browker. What'd you think of that one, Brian?
0: Great information, uh, and being timely. Getting ready to start hinging. I think a lot of our listeners already are with their seasons being over. But I've got a few more weeks of hunting left, and then I'm going to be diving into this. So, real timely. Uh, check out Jim's book for sure. I just downloaded it, went through it briefly before the podcast to get some notes. And uh,
1: it, it's
0: it's really interactive, like you said. It's, it's awesome. You could have it on your laptop or your tablet. If you don't understand something, there's a link to a video, and you can watch him explain exactly what he's talking about. So, highly recommend it.
2: Yeah, and uh, it was great having him on and just hearing – you know, so much about how to actually go through this hinge cutting thing. I've been, uh, you know, as much as you can read and and this and that, it's good to just hear it again right in in hinge cutting season. So I'm going to hopefully get out and put some trees on the ground here soon. But thanks again, Jim, for coming on. And, uh, you know, we want to thank the listeners as well for joining again this week. You know, we couldn't do this without you guys. Really appreciate you tuning in. Hopefully this episode benefits some people out there in the woods um like you said brian i know a lot of our listeners and and fans and friends have already been out there cutting i know uh rick yagi and pa he's been out there cutting Uh, a bunch of guys in michigan been out there cutting so hopefully it helps you guys um i want to thank our sponsors we have nations creations the habitat hook jim mentioned using get your
4: orders in for that
2: (laughs) yeah he's pumping them out so get your orders in uh I know Jim mentioned during the podcast, he's been using one of those hooks for years now. So, you'll see some of the hooks in, in his videos if you go check out Jim's YouTube page. Um, Killer Food Plus. Spring is coming up, guys. He's getting seed together, getting new bags and products packaged. Check him out at KillerFoodPlots.com. And lastly, Packer Max line of Cult of Packers. Brian uh, just put a video up on Instagram of him and his new Packer. I know uh, he's pretty impressed, and my friend Jordan picked up one, too. He put his together last week, and he's impressed with his as well, guys. So it'd be great to put in those spring food plots, and check him out at PackerMax.com. You can find us at HabitatPodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, SoundCloud, wherever you guys listen to a podcast. I always say just search and you'll be able to find us. If you have a good review and you feel like leaving it, let me know. I'll get you a decal. Other than that, thanks for listening. Tune in again soon, and we'll be back with some more great information. Brian, anything else from you, brother?
0: No, I think we covered it all. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Appreciate all of you out there listening. Send us some feedback. That's what helps us keep going.
2: Great, guys. Have a great day. And thanks for tagging along as we become better Habitat managers.